Welcome to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're an entrepreneur and you're driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. This is a podcast brought to you by Faith Driven Entrepreneur. You can check us out at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community. Please send us any questions, any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you, and any thoughts about or questions on being a faith-driven entrepreneur. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur. It is so good to have all of our listeners with us. We are so excited for the show today. Today on the show, we get to welcome a phenomenal nonprofit entrepreneur by the name of Peter Greer, yep. the executive director of Hope International. Henry, I know you served on the national board for Hope. Maybe give us a little bit of how you got to know Peter and why you felt the calling to go on the board and, and serve yeah. with him. I'll tell you, and if you're interested, there's some great blogs that we did early on, maybe back in May, where we talk about the founding story of Hope International. And Peter has uh, shared with us a bit, as has Jeff Rutt, as a home builder, started this incredible microfinance organization. But I'll tell you, my story, my interaction with him came from getting really interested in entrepreneurship and faith. And this is maybe a dozen years ago. And I found this organization called Kiva. I love Kiva. I love Kiva. I do too. And one of the things I loved about Kiva is that they did a podcast. Mm -hmm. Have you ever listened to Kiva podcast? I have early on. I mean, they were, were, if my memory is right, they um, were doing podcasts at sort of the beginning of podcasts. Yeah, I think that they were. They did a great job, and I listened to four or five of them. And I'll never, ever forget where I was during probably the sixth time I listened. And they had this guy, Peter Greer. We're about to have him on. And Peter talked about being able to extend loans to the working poor in a way that would give them real dignity and respect and in a way that could really alleviate financial poverty. But then he stopped and he said, but that's not enough. At Hope International, we also believe in the alleviation of spiritual poverty. And I'll tell you, I remember exactly where I was on Route 751 in Durham, North Carolina. I almost wrecked my car Hmm. because it was the blending of all the things I cared about. It was this entrepreneurship, and I was so excited about microloans and microfinance, and it came out of left field that there's actually a guy on here that actually blended his faith and was so bold mm. as to make sure he stopped the podcast host and said, wait, there's more. Mm. And he was so courageous and winsome about talking about spiritual poverty on a secular podcast that I then cold called him. I called him up. I'm like, dude, that was awesome. I was like, you don't know me from anybody. I'm this entrepreneur in, in North Carolina, and I and this is before Bandwidth had major success. Not that it's had major success now, but it was much smaller at the time. But I'm an entrepreneur. I'm so fired up about what you're doing. How can I help? And he said, why don't you come up and hang out with us? I mean, most people would say, well, we've got a giving page. Right? <laughs> Check that out. Yeah. Here's the uh, link. Yeah, but he said, why don't you come and hang out with us? But, you know, one of the things that made it easier for him maybe, is the fact that they're in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is very hard to get to. <laughs> and so it's a great weeding out process. But I made it through, and I went through Amish country, and I came out and I spent the day with him and with his, uh, the founder and the chairman of his board, a guy named Jeff Rutt, and just fell in love with the mission that they're on and the incredible work that they do across 14 countries. But I could go on and on about Peter Greer, but uh, our audience today wants to hear from Peter himself Let's bring the man on the line. Hey, before we do that, yeah, though, I sure. want to thank you. You're such a connector, just like what you just described. I want to thank you for allowing us to be where we are today at Valley Christian School, where your kids go to school. Yes. And so here we are today in a studio at Valley Christian um, with a bunch of really entrepreneurial kids right next door to us doing really fun, cool things. Might be a little background noise. You might hear that every now and then, but that's where we are. But, uh, you know, because of you, Henry, and the way you connect people, like you're getting ready to connect us 
in just a moment. Um, we're all, it's a blessing for all of us. So I just want to say thanks. Well, that's great encouragement. Well, it goes right back to you. You've been able to, we all have. And that's a fun thing about us being a team of three. Mm. Uh, we're the world's most dangerous podcast. We're the most <laughs> fun guys. We just came back from a great Mexican taco lunch. And it's just really cool to be doing this with you guys. Thank you. Amen. Well, we've had Peter waiting for a little bit, so we're going to bring him in and uh, stay tuned for a second. All right, Peter, thank you for being with us. It's a big treat for me. I told these guys as we're getting started in our audience about how I got introduced to you. Effectively, I cold called you after having listened to you on Keep a Podcast. But start off at the beginning, please, and talk about Hope International. Yeah, and Henry, no joke, that call from you, that was one of the defining moments of Hope International and uh, of me. I'm serious. That was an incredible, and who knew the places and paths that that uh, conversation would lead. So I love being on this podcast, and seriously, thank you guys for the work that you're doing. Yeah, just real quickly, I mean, Hope International, we are a Christ-centered microenterprise development organization operating in 16 countries and really using three primary tools, church-based savings groups, where individuals save their money together, and then they become their own investors committee essentially where they invest in each other's businesses. Then we have formal microfinance institutions. These are regulated banks that operate to serve those that typically have been excluded from the formal financial sector. And then small and medium enterprises as well. Larger enterprises that the goal is to try to help scale so that jobs can be created. And within these three tools, again, keeping Christ at the very center, we believe it's possible to gain the whole world and yet lose what matters most. So very intentionally, in the way that we think about staffing, the way that we think about systems, the way that we think about partnering with the local church, remaining focused on that, and then really uh, making sure that everything that we do is trying to go to the challenging and underserved areas that, again, the markets have not yet efficiently served as well. So that's what we are, started by a church in Pennsylvania, partnering with churches around the world, almost serving a million entrepreneurs currently, and really trying to figure out how the church... entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So take us on a, just a quick trip. So you're talking about it on a bigger level. It's Christ-centered economic development. If we were with you right now on a mission or a vision trip to the DR, as you do often, or to Rwanda or someplace like that, what would we experience? If we go with one of your loan officers into the field, into a meeting, who are we meeting with? What's going on? You know, just last week we had an event in Dallas, Texas, and it was so much fun because the event was really built around some entrepreneurs in Texas, and we got to hear their story, and the connection was not difficult to make between their stories of the group of people that invested them, the story about what motivated them to step out, the motivation of trying to create and use their God-given abilities. And so what we would be seeing if we were together in one of the places where hope serves is individuals with that same heart, individuals with a gifting, with the desire to create and provide for their families and really using the tool of entrepreneurship to do that. So what you would experience is if you're with Hope or one of our partner programs, you would experience a loan officer. That's the staff member that goes into these communities. We might be meeting in a church. We might be meeting under a tree. And they would go through five W's. 
And again, this is where this hope model is this intersection of missions, of discipleship, and of advancing entrepreneurship through accessing capital. And so the way that it practically works is they're welcomed. There's a time of worship. We would sing and pray together. And if you were there, we'd make sure you are doing a little dance as part of that opening. And then there would be a time where the word is read, basically an obedience-based Bible study, reading scripture, saying, what did it say? And how do we obey what we just read? And then the work happens. And that's where savings are given. That's where loans are given. That's where entrepreneurship training happens. And uh, then it's this group of individuals really partnering with each other to make sure that they are making progress out of poverty. And then the last W is wrap up. We would also be reflecting on what we just learned, what we just heard, and what needs to happen differently as a result of what we just experienced together. So it is a group-based model that builds on community with Christ at the center and that mobilizes capital. fascinating. I mean, that sounds to me like a platform, like you found a platform that you can build upon and others can build upon. Where did that come from? Well, that was from our partner in the Philippines, the Center for Community Transformation. And we were doing the elements of that, but had not clearly articulated that in quite the same way. And as you all know, if you're going to try and scale any sort of business, uh, simplicity is your friend and repetition is your friend. And so we saw what they were doing and they graciously encouraged us to take that and roll it out throughout the Hope International Network. But the broader model of group-based solidarity lending, which is really the backbone of who we are and what we do. That is credited to Muhammad Yunus in the modern movement of microfinance, the founder of Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. So that model is not something that we created. Um, It was really this idea that here's a tool and the church has been on the sidelines and not engaged. And so it was really taking this tool that had been developed and then making sure Christ is at the very center. And that really has been the Hope International experiment of how do we take what has been effective in economic development in these tools of job creation and capital mobilization, and then how do we do that in such a way that Christ is at the very center? So that's been the Hope International experiment. It's really trying to take these tools that have been around for a long time, but I believe the church has not really effectively used. And just one stat on that is right now, best guess, we believe that Christian organizations as broadly defined as possible are serving 6% of the current clientele. So not even on the map but less than one and a half percent of the global demand. So the church hasn't yet discovered these tools, I believe, and really used them as effectively as they could be employed to, again, invest in individuals and to do so, as you said, Rusty, with this platform of also sharing the hope of Christ. So one of the things that I think is relatively unique to hope, or at least on the scale you have, a million entrepreneurs, is this insistence on being a part of the alleviation of spiritual poverty. And I've known enough about the organization that you've got a very, nuance may not be the right word, but maybe a broader definition of poverty. And it's poverty not just of the recipient of this economic development, but also speaks to our poverty as well. Can you explain that a little bit about the dynamic between the Westerners from the church working with the working poor and and just the relationship of that? Yeah, Henry. And again, I feel like with Hope International, there's not a whole lot that we have created from scratch. We want to be good students. We want to learn from others. We want to read widely and learn well. 
And so one of the authors that we so appreciate, Bryant Myers, Walking with the Poor, and his book, Looking at. So what is poverty? Because if we get the problem wrong, we're going to get the solution wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes when you ask a question to a North American audience, what is poverty? The response will be poverty is lack of stuff and lack of money. If you ask that same question to individuals living in financial poverty, they will say feeling of shame, like I can't provide for my families, feeling of isolation, feeling that I'm voiceless or powerless to change anything. And it's a much broader picture of what poverty is. And I love how Bryant Myers and then also Brian Fickert and Steve Corbett, they talk about these four domains of poverty that yes, it is material. And I believe that it's really hard to flourish as an individual or as a society if there is rampant material poverty. That's not the way that we're meant to be. But that's not the only aspect of poverty. There also is spiritual poverty, lack of an understanding that God loves you, lack of understanding of who we are in Christ. And there's also social poverty, feeling of alone, broken relationships, not having social capital. And then there's a personal aspect of poverty as well well, a feeling like life will never change, a feeling like there's no hope for the future. And so even if you look at Hope International and what we spend our time monitoring and evaluating and listening, we talk about this balanced view of poverty, that there's a spiritual aspect of it, there's a material aspect of it, there's a social aspect of it, and there's a personal aspect. And to your point, Henry, that means that when we travel around the world, we don't go in with this belief that we don't have any aspect of poverty, that we don't go in with this understanding that, look at us, we've got it all figured out. We can go in and say to the families that we serve, you guys seem to love each other incredibly well. Tell me about this sense of community. You understand a relationship with your creator that I would love to grow. Tell me about your relationship with God and tell me about that. And it changes it from there's one group of people that might have a little more money in formal education and saying, therefore, we must be the ones to go solve the problem of poverty around the world. That is pretty paternalistic and just slightly arrogant. And it instead says we we all have broken this in our lives. And yes, we want to learn. Yes, we want to grow together because we all have something to give and we all have something that we need to receive. And so it broadens the conversation of poverty. It destroys the hierarchy of some people that are going to be the problem solvers and other people that are going to be the recipients of our good intentions. And it instead says we all have broken this. Let's learn together and let's figure out who Christ has made all of us to be. So oftentimes, we'll get involved in overseas missions and giving to be able to handle an orphan crisis or something like that. But how is it that your entrepreneurs, once they're really flourishing, what does it look like for them on the field? Give us an example or a story. Maybe you can think of the same one I was thinking about, maybe another one. One of the things, Henry, that I just so appreciate, again, to the previous conversation is that I have learned about generosity. Yes, I've learned it from you. Uh, yes, I've learned it from a lot of other people in the States. But I have also learned about it from people that are living around the world that have shown what compassion and action looks like, what extraordinary generosity looks like. And you and I open up and we read the teachings of Jesus and we try to learn. And that same Bible and those same words of Jesus, they are true for individuals around the world. And I have seen what that looks like. And so, you know, one of the things on a U.S. side that my wife and I are passionate about is orphan care and foster care. And it has opened up our eyes and our hearts 
to just an incredible way about the opportunities that there are right in our own backyard to love and serve. And so I think I always have eyes to really kind of see that regardless of where it is. Who are people that are loving orphans, uh, vulnerable children? And so I was with uh, Severa in Rwanda. And one of the things she talked about her business, she talked about the way that she had diversified her income. She talked about how she was involved in these different businesses. But my ears really picked up when she said, and we have adopted, we brought in eight orphans. Now, this is not over a period of time. This is not cumulative. That is how many at that moment in time were living in her house. And I think the common narrative that some of us have been told is that we've got to figure out a way to end the orphan crisis around the world. And we've never really stopped to consider that maybe it's not all up to us. And maybe there are other individuals in that community that have even more of a passion. And maybe those individuals are already doing. And so what I have seen time and time again is that as economics go, as income goes up, it is not uh, easy to find conspicuous consumption. You know what I see most is I see extravagant gratitude that is translated into an openness to care for the even more vulnerable that are living within that community. And Henry, you're the one who introduced me to Bishop Hannington in Uganda. And maybe in the show notes, you need to share that video as well, because that is just so compelling when you get to see the generosity of Everyone who understands that they have been loved, they have been the recipient of incredible undeserved love, and therefore, how could we not live our lives uh, giving to others as well? So I think those examples of generosity that I get to see, yes, in the U.S., and I celebrate them, but when I see them around the world, it is so crazy inspiring. Wow. Peter, so switching gears a little bit. So Henry mentioned you've written a few books. I'm going to be honest. I haven't read the latest one, but I've heard a couple of people talk about it. So I'm interested because I think it's so useful for our entrepreneurial audience to think about this concept. So I want you to introduce Rooting for Rivals a little bit, what the concept is, and then I think we're going to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, you know, one of the early prompts in thinking about this whole concept of rooting for rivals happened when we heard the example of what was happening within the Bible translation movement. And I had a foundation executive who told me, he said, there have been three organizations that were trying to raise funds to translate the Bible into the same language for the same people group. And he talked about the redundancy that he saw. He talked about the spirit of competition that he saw. And what he saw in Bible translation is oftentimes a spirit that a lot of us have is looking at other organizations and seeing them as our competition, as opposed to uh, reimagining the way that we see each other, especially within followers of Jesus. And so a group of them actually changed the model and approach. They started open sourcing some information. They started having joint events and they were on track to translate the Bible into every language by the year 2150. But after this period of coming together, meeting, they're now on track for the Bible to be translated into every language on earth for every people group by the year 2033. So they took 117 years off of the pace of progress. And what is true in Bible translation? I believe it's true for all of us that we can, if we dream 
a dream that would be impossible to do on our own if we would be open to the fact that there are others that already are committed to this work. And if we would redefine our competitors, not as the other organizations, but as the bigger issues that are facing us as a community of people, we would be able to accomplish so much more. And so we actually celebrate examples where we see radical open-handedness and generosity between organizations. We celebrate where we see this in the business environment. We celebrate where we see it in churches, where they refuse to just identify success or failure based on what happens within their walls and instead say, what's happening as a community? We celebrate this when we see it in churches that are saying, let's be open-handed. Let's open source everything that we have so that other organizations can learn and grow, because why would they need to replicate what we've already spent time developing? And, And so this idea of rooting for rivals, it's really kind of a play on words is how do we redefine who is a rival and imagine, not just think big, but think beyond the bounds of our organizations. I had a question for you around your global nature. You've got people who are working with these entrepreneurs all over the world. How do you hold your culture together, your culture, as you have these international employees all over the world that you're hiring and trying to bring them into you know, your one culture? Because that's one of the big issues that we always, you know, it's time to scale. Well, do I stay local? Do I go national? Do I go international? There's always that temptation. I think a lot of times, at least in the technology startups that I've been involved with, it's like, oh, don't go international because you're going to lose the culture. Oh, you won't be able to control what happens on the other side of the world. Um, you're probably a great example to tell us how we can do that. So maybe talk a little bit about it. Yeah. And just real quick, if I can, to your point on the idea of the individuals that really do have this kind of cutthroat competition versus those that seem to celebrate the others find that two things that they have in common. The first is that they believe in a world of abundance, not a world of scarcity. If you believe in a world of scarcity, anytime someone else gets a little more, that means less for you. Famously, uh, Ray Kroc said this. He said, if any of my competitors are drowning, I would still Stick the hose in their mouth, turn on the water, because this is rat eat rat, dog eat dog. And that's sort of in a model. It's really from a scarcity mindset as opposed to an abundance mindset. And secondly, uh, is do we believe that we have a mission that extends beyond the bounds of our organization? And so I think there's an opportunity to really be living this out by rejecting the myth of scarcity and seeing that it's possible for us to grow in ways that really do benefit us both, as well as it's possible to really think beyond just our organization. Then just real quick, your question about culture, two things. One is simplification and second is repetition. So simplification, when we say the hope culture, if we're going to expand globally, we've got to be able to articulate that in a way that everyone understands. So we have our culture document and then we hire for it and then we celebrate it where we see individuals living it out. And we do that around the world. We celebrate our culture and everyone who works with Hope International can articulate what our culture is. And then again, so simplification, repetition, and celebration become really powerful ways to reinforce uh, the culture that we have. I want to ask another question back about rooting for rivals, because you mentioned, uh, and I think that's talked about in the book, it's not just within the realm of not-for-profits or ministries or churches, which can also be very difficult to be clear, but also can happen, you can compete well in the for-profit world. So some good amount of people who listen to Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast are church planners and they're not-for-profit entrepreneurs. And some amount, maybe a little bit more, tend to be for-profit entrepreneurs and they're competing every day 
and they have opportunities to talk about their competition every day. What does it look like? What does rooting for rivals look like? Uh, presumably, or maybe not. Maybe it's the same, maybe it's different. How would you react? Yeah, so I think the language that we use matters a whole lot. And Henry, when you were on the board of Hope International, on my wall, I used to have a chart and it used to track the growth. And it was uh, not just a chart of Hope International, but it was who I identified as our competitors. And so it was the growth of Hope compared to, and I think there is a really dangerous place to spend too much time in the land of ER, in the land of ER, I heard a sermon about. Uh, but this idea that we're going to find our meaning, our significance always in relative terms. And that does two things. If you're going above the curve, you're feeling really good. And we know that pride is a source of all kinds of challenges down the road. Uh, or you feel like we don't measure up to them. And so you start falling into this funk, this slump of what am I doing wrong, as opposed to a little bit different perspective, which is maybe they're the right competition, but maybe that's not the best yardstick to use. Maybe there are other indicators that you should be looking at. And I think this idea of relative growth that leads to relative success or failure, it's just a dangerous road. I much rather spend time focused on are we as an organization healthy? Are we doing the right things? Are we learning and growing? Are we kind of focused on some of those upstream indicators that over time are going to have a far greater influence on whether or not we're able to achieve some long-term outcomes? And so I just think, yeah, you know, maybe every once in a while it's good to do some comparison. It's good to look at different. But I think more than that, looking ourselves in the mirror and saying, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing it faithfully? Am I staying on mission with what God has called me to do? I think long term, that is a far healthier place to be than either pride or down in the despondency that comes from what am I doing wrong that is the result of unhealthy comparison, which just is toxic to the human soul. Yeah, yeah that's really good. So you've been very successful in your authoring. You're pretty prolific, really. You know, great books. How do you keep yourself grounded in all of that? You're running a fantastic organization. You get notoriety from that. The books, you know, you obviously get called to probably speak on those, to do other things. Here you are with us. How do you as a leader keep yourself grounded? And if you don't, that's a fine answer, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, similar to Henry, I can't speak for anyone else, but I married up. And that is not like a subjective, that is a factual statement uh, on every way. So I have an incredible wife, Laurel, and as much as I love my job, my most important title is husband and is dad. Those are important titles. And one of the things that I did several years ago was to write my resignation letter and give it to my wife, Laurel, so that if uh, she ever felt that I was not fulfilling that, uh, my job as husband and dad, I would walk away from a job that I really do love because there are other people that can and will step into this role at Hope International. But my role as husband and dad 
Those are more important to me. So there's an element of grounded in terms of prioritization. And candidly, that came out of a misalignment of priorities when my work took an unhealthy place in the order of loves in my life. So I think that's one piece. And I think the second piece is God has been so gracious in giving me some wonderful failures, <laughs> because I think that success is a far more dangerous place to be spiritually than when you come to the end of yourself. And I'm so grateful for Hope International's growth. I really, really am. It's not been without challenges. I'm so grateful for the writing and the way that that really is life-giving to me. Not all the writing projects have gone as I would have hoped. The one that probably had the most impact on me writing, uh, I feel bad for the publisher because it just didn't even come close to minimum expectation. So there have Which been... Which that? Can you share that? <laughs> Which one? It's, you know, seriously... I, so again, the one that had the greatest impact on yeah. me, the 4040 vision, it, it was marketed as two people in midlife. And I think that actually was a mistake built on the book of Ecclesiastes. I think there would have been a different way of talking about that. But I consider that God's gift because kind of halfway through the journey, it was a chance to take a step back and say what really matters and to imagine life at the end. Imagine what matters at that moment and then live life backwards on that. So it was a great process writing with my friend Greg Lafferty. It didn't sell very many copies. And in fact, yeah, until I, today, I, until, I, until now, that's yeah. right. Well, I'm sending the three of you a signed copy of that book. Because <laughs> you may or may not have some laying around. <laughs> you know, one of the things I know uh, about you is that you're also in a part-time and volunteer capacity on board as a venture partner at Praxis, you have a great opportunity of being along for the ride in around faith-driven entrepreneurs. What are some things that you would want to share with our audience that maybe we just haven't talked about in this podcast, but you see his themes coming up again and again and again, and just really what you'd like our audience to know? So what advice that we haven't talked about? One is um, do not dare to do this on your own. You need other people alongside you. And I'm a big fan of the constellation mentoring model where it's not just this idea that we have one Paul and then we have one Timothy and we have one superhuman person that's going to have everything that we need. And instead, it allows us to break the model of mentoring down to say, what are those areas that you want to learn and grow? And then how can you break that out into areas? And then also, who are you pouring? into. So practically for me, when I started at Hope, I wanted to make sure that I was learning, staying rooted in my faith. So who's my spiritual mentor? Wanted to make sure I had someone speaking into my marriage. So who are my marriage mentors? Someone who speaks into my business. I wanted to find the most successful entrepreneur I could find and ask that person if they'd be willing to spend time with me. I wanted to learn about fundraising. I had never done fundraising and I was shocked to realize that was a part of my job when I joined Hope International. A little surprise on that one. And I wanted to learn about microfinance and microenterprise development. So instead of looking for one person that I want to learn from them about their marriage and I want to learn about them in it allowed me to say, let's find people in those areas. And those have been some of the most significant friendships that I've had. So I love that idea. And it allows you with intentionality to say, 
this is where I want to learn. This is where I want to grow. And then who are the very best people that can speak into that? That has been hands down the best professional development. It's not a course. It's not a seminar. That has been an incredible way of learning and growing that I'm so grateful for. And so I just would say for the entrepreneur, like, don't try. It's too dangerous. Don't do it on your own. Find those mentors. Find those peers. We call them 3 a.m. friends. Find those people that you can call at 3 a.m. that would drive in the car to be with you. And then also find those people that you are pouring into as well. So Constellation Mentoring, 3 a.m. friends, and people that you are pouring into as well that might just be a step or two behind where you were as well. Great advice. Great advice. Constellation Mentoring, 3 a.m. friends. Those are good things. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been an amazing time. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. I've gone through scaling an organization and culture, and we've gone through Rooting for Rivals, your latest book, and we've gone through your other book that we are going to get a copy of, but no one else has probably read, which is fantastic. And it's just been a really great joy to have you here and such wisdom. Uh, I can just feel it when I hear you talk about it. Such hard-fought wisdom over 14 or 15 years that you so graciously have shared uh, with our audience. So thank you so much. Peter, I'm a big fan. I'm so grateful. Thank you, brother. Uh, privilege is mine. Thank you so much. And may the Lord continue to bless you and your family and the Ministry of Hope and all the caseworkers and all those million entrepreneurs out there. May they continue to be light and salt in their own areas. And dear Lord, just lift up more women like this woman that we just heard about, who's with the profits she has from her business, that people who give to Hope of Help Finance, she's out there loving on orphans in her midst. And that's really motivating and encouraging. Thank you for the way you love us, Jesus. Thank you for the way you love hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. Please go to faithdrivenentrepreneur.org and let us know if you have any questions, any of those tough ones that you'd like us to tackle. If you have any videos, articles, sermons, or podcasts that have been helpful to you on your journey, we'd love to see them too. Just send them our way. Lastly, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you in any way, we'd appreciate you commenting, sharing it with others, and subscribing. This podcast would not be possible without help from many of our friends. Music by Carl Cadwell. You can see more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. And editing by Johnny Shue. Thank you.